Hey, dickheads! Or anyone else who's tuning in to the Dickheads Podcast bonus episode interview with Weston Oaks, author of Burning Sky and the SEAL Team 666 series, among a shit ton of other books. But he'll be talking about all those in a little bit. I just want to do a short intro to tell you what this podcast is about. The Dickheads Podcast is devoted to the works of Philip K. Dick. There is one big reason why this interview is so great for our dickhead listeners is that this book has a lot of interesting themes that are very related to the writing of Philip K. Dick and concepts and ideas that he used, which was really interesting because Weston admitted he's not a dickhead like the rest of us, but that's okay. Anyways, this podcast is devoted to the work of Philip K. Dick, and what we do is every month we read a a novel of Philip K. Dick's in chronological order of which they were published, and we break it down. Um, We think he's one of the most important science fiction writers of the 20th century, and you can learn a lot from the craft of writing to the ideas uh, in each of these episodes, in each of these books. So... A lot of people have told us, I'd love to read Philip K. Dick. I'd love to know more about Philip K. Dick, but he wrote 30 frickin' books. Uh, Maybe he wrote 50, didn't he? Yeah, around 50. All right. Anyways, uh, we're going to break them all down, and we're reading them so you don't have to. If you don't want to, you can use us as cliff notes and listen to the episodes. We started with his first book, Solar Lottery, a couple months ago, and we've been doing one a month ever since. And there's a lot of really good information. And also every month we take one of the film adaptations of Philip K. Dick's work and we compare it to the source material. So we've also done Minority Report, Total Recall, The Adjustment Bureau. And let me tell you, The Adjustment Bureau episode just came out today and it's a very heated one. So please go back and check out our archives. And, you know, if you like what we do, spread the word. And on to the Weston Oaks interview. All right, dickheads. Uh, we're here today with Weston Oaks. He is the author. Uh, he is the Bram Stoker Award winning author of Scarecrow Gods, Seal, the Seal Team 666 books, and the Grunt Life trilogy of military sci-fi books. But he's got a new book out called Burning Sky. We're going to talk about all of that eventually. But why don't we just start with, Weston, where did you grow up and how did you get into genre fiction? So I grew up, so I'm a product of a, of a broken home in a trailer park in, in uh, the edge of the Great Plains in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, uh, so I've, I, I feel like I've, I've come a long ways and scrabbled pretty damn hard. Um, I traveled all over the U.S. and ended up living most of my childhood in Chattanooga, Tennessee, of all places. Um, what ended up what ended up uh, happening is 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 I was lucky enough to be in a house with nothing but books and and very little TV. Um, my my mom taught uh, English and my dad uh, taught English as well, and so I had all these English books and I. I read nothing but literary fiction and fantasy um, books up until uh, um, probably Stephen King's second book came out, and and then I, I read a few of his, and I thought they were fantastic. But you know, I never really knew there was a thing called genre fiction. Um, and then many years later, when I turned thirty, when I I started to write. Um, I was just writing what I liked, and I soon found out that people were calling it horror, or people were calling it dark fantasy, and those labels I weren't really, I wasn't really familiar with. To be able to just writing about people, I'm putting in fucked up situations and seeing how they can get out of it. Well, and right out of the gates uh, with your first book, Scarecrow Gods, you won the Bram Stoker Award. Am I correct for fir- best first novel? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so can you tell us just, you know, real quickly about that book? Because we got a lot of ground to cover eventually, but um, it was an award winning book right out of the gates. It was. And it took me it took me quite a few years to write you know, as, as a first novel. Will I mean, Burning Sky took me three months to write as, as opposed to uh, the two years it took me to write Scarecrow Gods. Um, but essentially, it's it was a it was a story about about a. um about a young man who wanted to 
change his fortune and save his sister. And to do so, he had to figure out how to astral project. And he was he was lucky enough to find a disfigured Vietnam War vet to help him out. Uh, the book's out of print. I pulled it out of print from a small press. I'm going to re-release it in a couple of years because I'm really thinking about doing a sequel. Because I've, I've had a lot of people asking me to do, you know, they want to know what happens to a couple of the characters. So, um, Well, our, yeah. our San Diego listeners should know that we do have Scarecrow Gods at the downtown library. So, <laughs> Excellent. I, I love libraries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have seen it um, on the shelf there. Uh, so, so, you know, it was, it was a lot of work and it was, it was really hard because, you know, when you, when you write your first novel, it's really super hard. Burning Sky is going to be my 30th published book, um, which, which includes, um, like hardback novellas, you know, anything that was published in book form professionally, I count as a book. And, um, and, and, and Burning Sky is my 30th. So, you know, talking about my first, gosh, it seems so long ago, but it was only, uh, 14 years ago that I wrote it, 15 years ago that I wrote it. And, and then it was published in 2005. So between 2005 and 2018, damn, I've written a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. We, I didn't, we were commenting I didn't even realize on that. It Cause I, it feels <laughs> like I've been writing forever. Right. So your, your first like huge mainstream success was the, um, seal team six, six, six trilogy, which, yeah is um i kind of somebody i remember when i was reading it on the bus somebody asked me about it and i said well it's kind of like a a military action adventure uh version of the x-files um is kind of like how i sold it to this random guy on the bus um (laughs) but uh for for you know us here locally a good portion of it takes place in san diego because the seals obviously um are headquartered in in coronado and um but the the books kind of have this um monster hunter thing um but with like an attention to military detail that that um a lot of us sci-fi writers couldn't hope to have can you tell us how those books came about well sure i mean the the idea came the day after world or uh, the Dead Dog Party World Horror um, Convention in Austin. And that was May 2nd, 2011, I think, because I remember I was there with Jack Ketchum, um, Peter Straub, and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, somebody came down, uh, Gardner Goldsmith came down from, from, from upstairs. He said, turn the TV on now. And we turned the TV on, and President Obama was on the TV announcing that we had just killed Osama bin Laden. And, and, you know, there's pictures of us cheering and drinking and having a great time, which is, which is really super because it's a great uh, Jack Ketchum memory since he's passed on recently. Um, and the next day, I get an email from an editor at St. Martin's Press, who I'd known for a few years. Um, and he said, and he said, SEAL Team 666, what if they were the real ones to get Osama? I said, oh, what if they really were? Then who are they? So based on that just one question, um, I created the idea that what if we have an even more special team of special forces guys out there who don't just protect um, the world in America um, from uh, regular enemy. They do it specifically to uh, target supernatural creatures. And then I said, well, what if every country has one? Every first world country has like one of these groups. And and maybe ours was founded, and, and I, I, I eventually founded ours with the Continental Congress, and so that they have been around in one form or another since then um, because there's always been this supernatural threat that we just kind of don't know. Because I like it when there are these overarching mysteries that, you know, I only kind of peek into or pull different threads from and that it, me as a reader or even as a writer, it's still there. And I, I leave it kind of unexplained because to me, that's what life is. I mean, it's this huge unexplained arc. And mm-hmm. book three of that trilogy goes to really weird places and back through history in really cool ways. Uh, well, book three was great because, because we didn't know if there's going to be a book three and, and I, 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 I wanted to do it and, and, and the publisher wanted to do it, but he said, 
He said, because book one took place in Asia and not a lot of people knew a lot about Asian mythology. And, and because I used the mythology of the cultures I, I they encounter in book two really had to do with the cartels in Mexico and, and did with Aztec and, and, and Mexican uh, mythology. Um, book three, he said, I want you to do it in England. And I said, that's cool. He said, but I want you to use King Arthur. I said, dude, King Arthur has been done. Everybody has done so much King Arthur. So nope, got to be King Arthur. I said, so I thought about it and I thought about what was going on in England and what was going on in the world at large. And I said, okay, no problem, but I'm going to make King Arthur a white supremacist. And he said, what? I said, that, that's a deal. I mean, let me make him a white supremacist, you know, make, make Great Britain white again. And uh, at that point, he said, okay, well, let's just see what you do. And as, as, as you've read the book, you know, I, I, I made King Arthur, the green man, I, I turned him into somebody who was specifically targeting and killing those who would change the, uh, the color narrative of Great Britain. Right. Now, of a special interest to our um, readers or our listeners is um, science fiction, of course. And you have a science fiction series uh, trilogy that you did a couple years ago. And I've already interviewed you once about this, the first book in this series. And I admit, I've only read the first book yet. I've been uh, saving the books two and three. Um, and because uh, I just uh, want the right time to read it. But Grunt Life, the first book of the Grunt series, um, is an amazing military sci-fi book that is very much in theme with the book we're going to be talking about today. And PTSD is a huge part of the theme of the Grunt books. But there, it's a um, military sci-fi alien invasion type of story, but done in a really different and original way because the team specifically in the book is would really enjoy this um and it's similar in vain to the military sci-fi that uh, pkd did in second variety but on a much bigger scale can you tell us about writing the grunt books sure um i had worked with the publishers before when i did my two books with the Batten. And that was uh, Empire Assault, the zombie novel set in the Salton Sea, and then Blood Ocean, which is my post-apocalyptic novel set in their shared universe. Um, and the same editor um, moved to over to Rebellion in Solaris, um, and he and he asked me to to write a um, a military sci-fi trilogy for him. So I knew I wanted to be, be about PTSD, and I knew I wanted to do an alien invasion because. You know, between Footfall and all the other great alien invasion books out there, um, I really thought there was still some acreage that I could tread that hadn't been trod before. Um, and and I really want to talk about PTSD because I had just come back from Afghanistan. Actually, I was in Afghanistan at the time writing that book. And, and there's no place PTSD is more present than in a war zone. And I can't tell you how many times I was at the gym or, or – at a coffee shop or something. And I was looking at these guys with thousand yard stairs and, and, you know, they were already broken. And many of these people had been, um, this is like their fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh deployment to Afghanistan. So, um, it really helped me, I think, understand a little bit more because I wanted to, I wanted the plot to, to rotate around the idea that only people with PTSD can save the planet. I wanted it to be a PTSD positive novel. I wanted the heroes to have PTSD because before then, in virtually everything you've seen on TV or read, the person with PTSD was a bad guy. He was the sniper on top of the tower. He was the person ramming people with a car. He was the person with road rage, you know, whatever. I, and yet, yes, it's true. There are those people who, you know, end up doing things like that. But there's also, you know, doctors have PTSD. First responders have the greatest um, uh, issue with the PTSD of anybody else. I mean, I have PTSD and I think I'm a pretty good guy and I don't think I'm going to end up on top of a, a tower anytime soon sniping people. But I got to tell you, I, I do have my moments where I have an inability to deal with people and to function in normal situations. And it's just, it's just part, part of what, it, 
what going to places and doing the things I've done has done to me. And I wanted to kind of translate that and put that on the page. Yeah. And we're kind of burying the lead there and we should get back to um, uh, what your experiences are in a minute. But I just, on, on the topic of the Grunt Life books, one of the things that's really cool about the way that trilogy starts is it subverts the Cam- Campbellian uh, hero's journey thing by having a character who commits suicide on the, who, the lead character commits suicide on the first page or tries yes. to. And, um, you know, and, and is really serious about it. Like, it's not like he's crying for help. I mean, he wants to die on the first yep. page of the book. And that's very important because it's a huge part of why he's able to subvert alien defenses in that story. And uh, it was a really creative and awesome way to, um, to make a statement about the issue that you wanted to address. Now, you hinted at this, why you're a person that can write a book like CL Team 666, why St. Martin's would call you, why um, Grunt Life is a book that you can write. Now, look, I, I, I've tried my hand at military sci-fi, um, and I have about as much military experience as I do walking on the moon experience. Um, and so you're always going to have an advantage on us. Um, can you tell us about your experience and 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 how um, that informs you as a writer in general and specifically these these stories and then we'll get into Burning Sky. Well, so I spent the last 35 years working for the military here in America, uh, or at least one shape or another. Um, I've been to over 55 countries. I've been to quite a few war zones. Um, the last six months this year, I was in Afghanistan, you know, continuing my work, working for um, a particular defense department uh, group that I, I, I work with. And uh, and it gives me a certain insight and a certain ability to talk about things that most people really don't have more than a superficial understanding of. So I decided after I'd written about 11 or 12 books that, well, shit. Maybe you should write what you know. Isn't that what they tell you all the time? Write what you know. Um, and uh, I, I started doing that. And I was really able to, I think, n- narratively capitalize on that because I could understand the characters I was writing so much better than the other characters I had written before. And what's interesting, to tie back to my very first novel, Scarecrow Gods, the one of the main characters, Maxim Finks, who was the African American special forces guy who was who was um, tortured in Vietnam and and has the ability to leave his body because of the intense pain he was he was put through and he can astral project. Um, he became everybody's favorite character in the book, and he was a secondary character for me. He wasn't the primary character, but he was everyone's favorite character because I think not only was he compelling, but I was really able to give him so much more depth because I was in the military then as well. And I was able to um, really write him from a place from my heart. Whereas all the other characters I'm writing from a place from my brain. Right. Yeah. And um, that leads us to, to burning sky, the new book Um, for, for the dickheads that uh, are listening um, specifically, this book uh, has a lot of, ideas and themes that we're going to talk about in this interview that are very Philip K. Dick sounding. The interesting thing is that uh, Weston admitted to me that uh, he has not read um, as much Philip K. Dick as um, all of us who are a part of the Dickheads and our Dickheads listeners. Um, he is familiar with his work, but I was totally shocked because this book in many ways feels very pkd um and i would say burning sky just you know how they hollywood likes to make those terrible um comparisons of it's this meets this meets this and and to me burning sky is like one third born on fourth of july one third jacob's ladder and then one third inception um in in the sense that um the born on fourth of july part is the is the trauma of war the the Jacob's Ladder is the insanity of war, 
And then in the inception is the what is real um, part of the story. What's interesting about what you said is I was thinking of, I was, I, I couldn't help but think of Jacob's ladder as I was about a fourth of the way through the book going, you know, I'm, I'm being very Jacob's ladderish in this part of the book. And I, I really need to, you know, and I think I might've even mentioned it in there, at least one of the drafts I mentioned Jacob's ladder just because I had that same feeling that you did. Well, and, and, you know, it's, it's funny because this is much more of a, um, an adventure story than Jacob's ladder, but it definitely has that kind of insanity of war thing going on. And I, I definitely want to say that I, you know, I love all your work, but for the people that are listening to this, who are, who are serious dickheads, burning the sky is a great place to start with Weston's work because, um, you'll feel a lot of similar vibes. Um, and this book also continues the themes of PTSD as well. Um, can you give us a kind of a quick introduction about what Burning Sky is about and how it relates to the issues of PTSD? So when I was in Afghanistan in 2013, I, I, I was fortunate enough to have a tactical support team, a TST like I have in here, um, ferry me around and help me out a few times. And what they are is they are men and women um, uh, almost all former military of some sort, m- many of them special, a special operator who have decided to come back and work as a contractor to do these special missions. It's kind of like Blackwater, but, but not quite like Blackwater. It's, it's, it's just more personal, um, personal protection and things like this. And because, because I was so impressed with their professionalism and, and stuff like that, I really wanted to include well, make them a core of a story. And it was only a matter of time before I was able to, you know, come up with what Burning Sky was about. Um, uh, yet I did, I noted that every single one of them, um, and to include the ones that, that, uh, that I've, I saw this last time, because we all do, uh, they all had PTSD to a certain degree. And they, and they all exhibited it in different ways. And so as you probably noticed, all of my main characters I have in, in and burning sky, they all have PTSD, but they all exhibit it differently. They all have show you different symptoms because I wanted to kind of cover the whole broad range of symptoms because, um, uh, I have a great expectation that I'll get as many emails, if not more than I did with the grunt life series. I mean, just two days ago, I got a, I got a, an, an email from a gal, a gal named Liz who said that reading the Grunt Life books helped her understand a particular loved one um, because it, it, it was able to explain to her how those pe- that person felt. I don't want to get too, too detailed because it's a very personal thing she said, but I mean, I've had so many of those and I feel fortunate that I can be that voice that can explain to people what it is about PTSD and, Yes, it's a bad thing, but it doesn't make us terrible. It just makes us different, you know? Well, and what's cool is that Burning Sky is a fun action and monster novel. Um, It's kind of like weird, what the fuck is real sci-fi novel, too. Because I think it's just as much sci-fi as it is horror. Um, Yep. And um, so, you know, you have this, this thing of this book that, you're you're got a message but you're never losing track of the fun of the, of the story um can you t- talk about balancing that when when you're working on a book like this well it's all story i mean you have to you have to approach everything from story first and everything else is secondary you have to you have to entertain the reader you have to you have to make the reader want to keep on turning the page you have to you know excite them um and you can't you can't be bossy or you can't be sermonizing or lecturing you can't do any of that and and be successful so you just have to do it through character. So it's it's how my characters feel. It's how my characters act that you get the PTSD. It's not me telling you and hitting you over the head, PTSD, PTSD, PTSD. It's just you're seeing it from a normal person's perspective. And, and at times they're also realizing, boy, I'm really fucked up, but I can't stop doing what I'm doing. Especially, especially when I think of the scene of um, – of uh, preacher's daughter when she's in the trailer wrapped in tinfoil and cellophane, you know, sliming her, sliming her entire body against the wall because she's trying to lose the, the, the voices in her head that are saying those words to her. 
Okay, so now I'm going to really try hard to uh, make sure that the dickheads understand why this is a book they want to read. This book um, is not just um, a really interesting story about this part of the world and this conflict that most of us have no um, understanding of. This book also involves time jumps, alternate realities, and crazy mythological monsters. Um PKD readers would be, uh, you know, we just did on Dickheads, we just did the Cosmic Puppets, which is a book that's very much about Zoroastrian gods. Well, guess what? Uh, Burning the Sky is very much a, a book about, that includes mythology of Zoroastrian gods <laughs> um, and mythology that relates to that. But it also has the time jumps and the alternate reality. These are all things that uh, our listeners uh, enjoy in PKD's work, but here we have a book that's doing it in a modern way. Can you uh, maybe talk to us about, um, you know, were you, when you were kind of devising this book and thinking about how um, PTSD messes with your, you know, with your equilibrium, was that a good jumping off point for, this kind of story that um, questions reality. It made it easier, certainly, for the characters to not really understand what was and wasn't reality because of their PTSD, and and because and because you as a reader have a have have a point of view of of one of the characters throughout the book, you then share this person's belief or disbelief in what in what what is right and what what is wrong, what is real. Or what is unreal? So absolutely, it was it it. I think it made it easier for me. Mm. Yeah, and and Burning Sky, I, I think. So what what you have is you have an action story, and you have the this, um, you know, you have monsters, and you and you have all these things, and and you have the what is reality, and what I think is really really cool um, about this book is that. Um, you can enjoy it as an adventure story. You can enjoy it as a puzzle because it is very much a puzzle as far as what's, what's happening. But, um, but at the same time, um, it, it's very well thought out and I just, I really loved burning sky. So I really hope that our listeners will check it out. Now, listen, the interview's not done, but what we're going to do now is, um, I just want, is there anything else you want to say before we get into spoilers? Because um, at Dickheads, we like to really get into the nitty gritty of how things are done. We want this podcast to be something that writers can use um, to understand and learn about the craft. But in order to do so, we need to get really in depth into the story. So before we do that, um, what's the last thing you want to leave our listeners before they go off and read Burning Sky and come back to the second half of this podcast? Um, well, yeah, I'd like to talk about just, just for a second, um, Cormac McCarthy and how his, his work inspired me to write this is, as, so if you, if you, um, if you remember the first, the first quote in the book is from Blood Meridian. And I was introduced to Blood Meridian because right around what the turn of the last century, um, the New York Times published its top 50 books of all time, and Blood Meridian was number one. And I had not read it, and so I said, "Well, if I'm if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be an English professor, which I am in my spare time, um, I I really need to be relevant and, and have read the relevant material." So I read it, and my God, what a horror story that is! It is it is an absolute horror story. Yeah. Oh. Anyone who says that Blood Meridian is not horror, I don't know what the hell they read. And and it's but it's very it's. So he specifically writes, Cormac McCarthy writes about man versus nature, man's inability to overcome nature. And, and that's, his, that's his recurring theme in every single one of his books. In the, in the movies, he's done the screenplays for, uh, like, The Counselor and a few other ones. It's the same thing. I mean, he writes that way. And I kind of believe that that's, that's a possibility as well. Um, and so I wanted specifically to have that as my, as my theme, man's inability constant attempt to but inability to overcome nature and sometimes just the very nature of being man. Um, so I stylistically 
wrote, or at least began writing the book in a very Cormac McCarthy way. And I'm not talking about not using punctuation and not using, you know, write paragraphs and stuff like that, like, like he doesn't. Uh, just, but, but the narrative style, I wanted to, to not mimic it, but kind of give an homage to the way that he wrote it, because I want people to get that same feeling from reading my novel that I get from reading his novels. So, so when you approach Burning Sky as a reader, um, and, and you're familiar with Cormac McCarthy, think about it. And if, if, and if you haven't, for God's sakes, don't buy my book. Go, go, go out and buy Blood Meridian. That's that's such a much better book than mine. Well, buy both. Um, and, and one last thing before we get into spoilers. Um, one thing that I really think uh, makes this book stand out is that on, on a lot of levels, the um, each of the characters has something very personal, um, the, personally tragic that they went through in the war. But the novel connects very much to the global um and that kind of drives the demonic or the, the the mythological forces. And so what I really appreciated about this book was the 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 local and global um, psychology of the the trauma caused by war. And I think um, it's funny because I, I I think some people would probably I think anyways, I, I believe that. Somebody who has experienced this is in a much better position to make a point of that. And I want to thank you, Weston, for, for this book. It's, um, it's really good. And I hope people will read it. But now <laughs> we're going to pause or we want you to pause this podcast. Go buy the book. Yeah, pause this interview. Go buy the book, read it, and then come back. Um, because we're going to talk very specifically, we're going to we're going to nerd out as writers um, about the process of writing Burning Sky, and I th- it will definitely ruin your experience if you listen to this ahead of time. So, are you ready, Weston, to go into spoilers? I'm ready. All right, uh, spoiler cannon or whatever we do. Um, so, I want to start off with the character lore. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I didn't, it's weird. I didn't take a lot of notes early on in the book, but I took a lot in the back half. Um, and we did kind of address already one of the few notes that I had was, was about, uh, uh, early in the book was Blood Meridian. But Lore as a character is the one who brings up the Zorastians, uh, issues, which is something that we just dealt with. How did you land on this mythology and what part of the, research um brought them into the story so i was doing research on a book that i'm i may or may not be knock on wood signing the contract for coming up pretty soon that i actually wrote before burning sky the book was i wrote it on spec and i did a lot of research on the bible and the exclusion of certain words that uh they took out of the different versions of the bible for the last two thousand years and how and how certain words no longer exist in the bible um, which is just fascinating from a, just a research uh, uh, point of view. Um, but doing that, I, I, w- I had been aware of Zoroastrian mythology and, and religion and, and Ahura Mazda and all the different Mazdas and, the, and all the different um, uh, ideas around it. I had written a couple short stories. I have a, a shared world story. I've been working with a friend of mine named Dan Southern for, for years that we I need to get off my ass and finish because he's just waiting on me. Um, but I really hadn't gotten into serious depth about uh, the mythology. And what what always excited me about it was that it's older than anything else. It's, it was been around a lot longer than Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or anything like that. And and it could be the mother or father religion of everything because because everything ends up seeming to tie into that. And because of that, it has a certain amount of gravitas that um, um, some things just can't have. It's just the, the sheer age of it. And uh, and then I and then doing the research, I stumbled upon the idea that um, from uh, Socrates' tutor to Alexander the Great to modern day folks, there's a certain area in Afghanistan where they see things burning in the sky that shouldn't be there. These things that look much 
like much like UFOs, you know, uh, or or much like um, burning shields. And um, I, I'm I'm a great believer that if that if uh, there are so many people throughout history who keep saying these things exist pre-internet, that that there's a likelihood that all of them saw something that they can't explain. And so it's my job then as a writer to explain that, to come up with a reason for that, tell you what that thing is. So one really interesting thing in the writing of, of Burning Sky um, is that early on in the book, there's a, you go back to um, uh, America briefly for like the first hundred pages or so besides the prologue. And there we get introduced to the characters' actual names briefly. But whenever we're in country, um, the characters only go by... Like there's lore, Boy Scout, um, you know, you know these uh, narco. These are characters that they all have kind of nicknames that they go by, and that was for a very specific reason. Um, can you talk about um, like why that choice um, in the writing of the book? Well, not only not only do we have nicknames when we're in when when we're in a combat zone, mainly because it's easier to communicate over the radio. For instance, my nickname in Afghanistan is Two Fingers. Um, that's a long story, and and that way that way when they when because my last name is hard to pronounce and not, and not everyone can get it right. My first name, you know, is 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 what it is. But if somebody says "Hey, Two Fingers" over the radio, then suddenly they know exactly who they're talking to. Um, uh, so there's that reason, but also the reason goes back to Blood Meridian that we talked about, about earlier, pre-spoiler, in that if if you read it, nobody has a name in there, you know. All the all the main characters have have a, a descriptive term of who they are, you know, from kid to judge to all the different all the different uh, players. And I wanted to kind of emulate that in that um, the fucked up place that the Comanches um, dragged them through in Blood Meridian is very akin to the fucked up place called Afghanistan that that these guys end up going back to time and time again. Yeah. Um, page 214. <laughs> now we're going to get into the, the reading part. Um, there's, there's a part that, uh, I, I highlighted and circled and I thought it was really revealing, um, character moment with, uh, Boy Scout. And he says, um, I'm hellbound because I had thin skin. So you know what I did? I grew, I grew my skin thicker. I had to learn to be aloof. I put on muscle and no one fucked with me. Even when I didn't laugh at their silly ass cracker fag jokes. And when the time came to join the teams, I jumped on it. Best thing that ever happened to me. Being on a team is different being in an infantry squad. When you're in a squad, it's all dick measuring and fighting behind the motor pool. When you're on a team, it's a matter of being part of a band of brothers like none other. And then God had the last laugh. I thought that was a great moment of character. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Um, just really great. Well, it's, 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 it's how we are. I mean, in, in the military, we have so many diverse people coming together and, um, and we do have to kind of change the way we act in groups much more than you do just in the civilian world. Because, because at the end of the day, our job isn't to go, um, to a business and to type something up or to buy something or to sell something. Our job is to kill people and break things. And in the doing so we end up breaking much of ourselves. Right. Um, so on, uh, hold on, let me, um, you might have to edit this a little bit. I got, I lost my, okay. Two twenty four. I thought there was a great part. Um, and this is a really interesting for idea for the book. Uh, Laura wagged a finger. They don't alter time. They cause us to alter our own realities. As to why they are trying to see it as time travel, it might be something we need to find out. So there's a, there's a part of the book where the characters think they're traveling through time, but they're not exactly traveling through time. They're traveling in a sense through the altered realities of their own traumatic disorder am i correct because that's the idea that i got from that part yeah the, yeah they they are they are and and they're and and they're traveling through 
um, almost a symbiotic shared experience in that they're each of them is bringing with with them as they travel together their own perceptions and their and their own obs observations and creating realities based upon that so um you and you know you and you and your four best friends if you were to travel like these people are traveling you would encounter people who you've never met before yet somebody else in the group has met them before and they're just being reconstructed to somebody um the idea for that is that is that if it's not time travel then who then is creating the universe and uh we ourselves are are then creating our own universe using um, uh, a particular mythological creature as the engine for that travel. Well, which is why I brought up um, the next book we're doing on Dickheads, which is Eye in the Sky, which is really funny because what that book does is these characters are all kind of in this one accident where they're knocked unconscious together and they're kind of traveling back and forth between each other's perceptions, not inside their minds, but inside their perceptions. So you have a character who's super ultra religious. And so when you're in their version of the world, um, you know, it's like a Christian dictatorship. And then you, and then you end up in another character who's a communist version of the world and, and it's like super socialist. And then you have one character who all they want to do is erase anything that they don't like, like they don't like cats. So there's no cats in their world. Right. And so what was really funny is cause I just read eye in the sky. And so this, this aspect of burning sky where they're kind of inside each other's trauma was just um, absolutely brilliant to me. It was one of my favorite things about this book. And um, I almost felt like I had to pinch myself that the book was doing that because I thought it was so cool um, and and just really neat. So I got to give you major props for that, Weston. I thought that was really excellent. Um, so on page 292, the, uh, sorry, I know I'm, I'm Larry's laughing at me because I do this to all the PKD books. But um, on page 292, the theme of the novel um, gets really expressed well. Uh, never once did he forget the falling man, the napalm girl, the burning monk, the burning deva or diva. I don't know how you, deva is how you, is deva. Deva is how I pronounce it myself. So. Yeah. So, um, so what you're talking about in this scene is these absolutely traumatic moments of history where war kind of intersects with history. Uh, the falling man from the, the World Trade Center during 9-11, the napalm girl running down the street in Vietnam on fire from napalm, the monk who set himself on fire. These are all moments that the novel recreates, but also, you know, expresses as these ultimate signs of the folly of war. How did you come to choosing these moments and how did you uh, weave them into the narrative? That was really cool. I don't, I don't know how I, how I came to those moments. I, I don't know what, what lightning struck me, but I remember thinking about my grandfather's basement. He had the best of time life. and He had like the, all those pictures in the last 50 years of, uh, of time life photos. And, and this would have probably been in the, in the, early seventies, mid seventies. And so, so the napalm girl was kind of fresh at the moment. And I remember to this day, because, you know, when, when a soccer mom is driving to work and she hits a dog or, or driving to pick up her kids and she hits a dog and the dog dies, that affects her for as long as she remembers it. And that's, and that, and that gives her a certain amount of PTSD. Well, I think that there are iconic images that affect you throughout your life and give you a certain amount of PTSD. Um, and I thought the napalm girl was the very first one that I ever saw that just kept, I kept thinking about over and over because the time I read I, or I saw the picture, she was about the age that I was. And so trying to put myself into her position as a young, as a young man on fire, scared to death, running down a road, um, you know, was, was pretty traumatic. And, and then in the same in the same 
book, I, I saw the I saw the one of the monk who set him on fire, and that in and of itself was it's crazy. Who sets himself on fire? What do you? And I talked to my parents about that, and um, and then of course I wanted something more recent, so um, I remembered the falling man, and 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 how just just the image of him. So many people had to jump to their deaths or burn alive, and the idea that you would rather jump than burn. Oh wow, it's I, it's hard to it's hard to to um, understand. But then if I think I talked about it in the novel, if you really look at the picture of the girl, the napalm girl, as a grown up, I looked at the picture, and I noticed that in the background on the right hand side are two American servicemen, both of them kind of just watching, not doing anything. One's lighting a cigarette. It's like, oh yeah, oh well, this is just this is just no big deal which really shows you what type of PTSD they have because the idea of a, of a naked 10 year old girl on fire running past them was just all in the day's work. There was, it was nothing new to them. And to me that just, that whole thing resonated. And I wanted to show how, how images throughout history can be so iconic that they can, they can give an entire culture an entire civilization PTSD just by the virtue of you seeing them. So um, for our listeners who um, are wanting to reference these parts and, and as writers who want to study um, the parts that make Burning Sky work, that the, the scene from the World Trade Center is on page 304. And um, I – yeah, I mean I immediately highlighted that page, bookmarked it on, um, and was just really floored by – the power of this scene. And I remember because, you know, we, those of us who, um, you know, and it's crazy to think that there's kids that are in college now that, that we're not old enough to remember nine 11 when it happened. Right. Um, and you know, I, I've talked with people that are younger and I'm trying to get them to understand, you know, just, you know, how much, you, you know, was going through everyone's mind on that day. And there's, um, you know, just mentioning on that page 304, there's, there's a description uh, of the hot wind blowing past the, the falling man before he jumps. And I think what's really powerful about that part of the book is that it's important and the scene with the burning monk and with the napalm girl is that we see these images all the time, but it's important to get into those moments and feel what those human beings would have been feeling at that moment. And it's a gift of this narrative that I really appreciated. So thank you, Weston, on that. Um, Yeah, very well done. And I think it it highlights some of the the best things about this book. Um, I want to, just from a a writing perspective, I I do want to go back to one of the concepts I, I, I found when I was floating around while you were talking with, with um, my copy of, of the book, um, one of the scenes uh, is on page 298, uh, really expresses something that we talked about earlier. And I think writers can learn a lot from, from this part on page 298. This is, this is a scene that kind of expresses how the shared trauma creates a universe that the characters are kind of transported to and from. And I'm going to read, um, with the help of, the dervishes, each of the TST members had created a part of the greater universal landscape of their own reality within which to interact. The people, the building, the cars, the very air everyone breathed had been invented by the combined weight of the thoughts of the tactical support team. There was no June with her crippled son. That's a character from early in the book. There were no camels with Joe Apiro's face on it. That's something that th- these are all things that were part of their reality. I'm sorry to interrupt the reading, but these are all things that. So, yeah, I guess I, reading this next part won't mean as much. But what 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 you're doing there is you're hearkening back to the wor- the real world that they were in before they kind of delved into the trauma reality. And so I would really suggest to the writers who are reading this book after you've read it once time, one time through just for the fun of it. But if you're wanting to look at what Weston was doing as a writer, this page 298 um, does a really amazing job of setting up and creating 
the alternate reality. I don't know if you have any thoughts on on the part that I just read. No, I mean, I had to tie it in. I had to I had to explain. And that was my moment to, you know, from from their point of view, kind of ballparking it, figuring out what's what's been going on. This is this is how they identified what was happening. Um, and the you know the idea that we we as a as a as a writer i really need to tie it back into um what they had experienced so i can so i can i can let you know and you, and you can detail as a reader that that stuff never happened it wasn't real so so remember it wasn't real even though it comes back and happens again um so it's hard it's hard to understand the idea that you experienced something you knew it happened. It affected you, but it wasn't real. Uh, how much more real can it be? You know what I'm saying? So that that in and of itself changes the nature of reality. Because even if it didn't physically happen, yet you have some emotional ramifications from it, well, then it had to have happened somehow. So, I, so, so that in and of itself is a second play of reality. Now... Uh, one of the most effective uh, scenes in the book for me, or just one of the scenes that really creeped me out, was when you wrote about the burning monk. And because one of the most interesting choices that you, you made in this story was that the burning monk just basically starts talking to Boy Scout. <laughs> um, and he's basically speaking for this, for the, um, the devas. And, um, Boy Scout is, is questioning this. He's basically talking to this burning monk, like, you know, uh, what are you really? Uh, what made you? And then the, the monk looks back at him and says, the better question is who made you? We looked away, then looked back, and there you were, shadows upon this world bathed in the light of creation. And like shadows, you bring darkness wherever you go. Boom. <laughs> yeah. That, to me... Um, uh, just that was a fuck yeah moment um because i'm a writer there are certain times where i'm reading a book especially with writers that i've met or i know where i just kind of like i'm sitting there reading and i kind of pump my fist and i'm like hell yeah um there you go uh wow what a powerful moment this was to me the the um the crux of the book and um i don't know if you have any comments on um the choice to make the burning man be the voice that that speaks to Boy Scout that basically kind of lays it all out for him. I just thought that was a brilliant brilliant um, choice in the narrative. Well, you know, the Burning Man had, had had the Burning Monk had his own thing that he had he had to say, and he he set himself on fire for a, a very political reason to to show the 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 world how the South Vietnamese government was treating um, uh, the Buddhist monks, um, yet. There had to be a reason for why the Deva was going to choose to use him as well, and I think it's because he represented that that he represented outrage um, to such a degree that he would then set himself on fire just to get a point across, just so there would be enough cameras there to take a picture, just so the iconic image would exist. So, so he was of course chosen by the Deva, and and that whole part of the conversation um, goes to the core of the next book. Uh, book two is coming out um, because if, if the Deva are so old and if Zoroastrianism is so old and has been around for so long, then how did they come about? Who did they worship? Who, who created them? Um, you know, there's, there's so many interesting things in mythology. Um, take for instance, um, uh, the, the pan god, right? The pan god is in both Greek and Roman mythology, but the pan god is also the only god that can die. And the pan god originated in Zoroastrian mythology before he was even in um, Greek and Roman mythology. So this is, and, and this is what Barry um, made Peter Pan based on. So it's, you know, talk about co using cosmic horror to lure children to a to a to a neverworld. That's that's what Peter Pan is for sure. Um, but I really needed to have 
the beginning, the nurturing elements of the broader story there because I wanted them to kind of be in mourning and kind of always looking for their lost children because if these deva were so powerful and if they were like gods, then what happened to their creations? Who were they? And I have my own ideas on that. Okay, I only have a few more questions. We're almost done with the spoilers. Um, I put my notes away, so so we've gotten through all the parts of the book. But um, being that, uh, I'm not sure if we talked about this last time with Grunt Life, but um, I'm a big outliner. I believe in outlining. I'm not sure if you're a pantser or an outliner, but a pantser, a plotter, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, this book seems to me like. And it's funny because whenever I really like a book, a lot of times I'll say to myself, this had to be plotted <laughs> ahead of time. Uh, but I'm wondering about the actual writing of this book. Um, what was the process? Did you did you outline? Did you pants it? Did you and where were you geographically when you wrote this? Because I know as much as you're traveling, I'm sure some of these books get written overseas. Um and I'm just wondering about how the process and how the geography of location fed into the process of writing it. Well, this book was written all in America. I did final edits when I was in Afghanistan this time, but it was it was it was all written in America. Um, um, I live in Arizona, as you know, in in, in the desert. So um, a part of it takes place there. I used to live in Los Angeles, so part of it takes place there. Right, what you know, right? Um, now, did I? Plot it or pants it. Now, hopefully my editor is not listening. And if he is, now's a good time to turn away because um, because I pantsed most of it. Um, but but realize I'm I'm on to 30 published books for now. I mean, it took me three and a half, four months to write this novel. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm able to do it. I use the Tom Pick Really School of Writing. Um, it's when I'm on contract, I write five pages a day. You write five pages a day. At the end of three months, you have you have a completed novel. That's ninety thousand word novel done. Three months. That's it. Um, and so, and so I, I try and I try and average five pages a day. Now, the beginning is pretty pretty well plotted in my head. I know I know what it is, and I usually know where I want to go. It's just trying to get there. Now, I'm also very well schooled in Campbellian um, hero's journey. I, I've taught classes on using the hero's journey to write screenplays uh, and to write books. Um, I've taught, I've taught classes in, in how to, and how to take screenplays written from the hero's journey and how to turn them into novels. Um, so I'm, I'm very well versed in that. And I think because I'm, I'm well versed in the hero's journey and I know which parts that I want to use and which parts I want to skip. And I know what type of archetypes I want to use when I'm writing that I'm really able to to kind of organize it in my head pretty well. So I guess there is a certain amount of um, plotting that goes on. It's just, it's not, it's not really on paper. Um, and I drive my wife mad because she's like, what are you writing? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to write this novel. So-and-so it's going to be about 94,000 words. And your so wife I'm, is a really accomplished writer as well, by the way, we should mention oh, that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Yvonne Navarro. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say it's going to be about 94,000 words and it'll be 32 chapters and it'll come in unerringly within a thousand words of what I said before I, before I wrote it. And it'll, it'll have this, that amount of chapters because really to me, 30 to 32 chapters is what you need to do the hero's journey properly. Um, and as, as, as you know, sometimes I don't do the hero's hero's journey the way that you would expect it, but I still used it. Those elements of storytelling because as humans, we are used to hearing a narrative said to us in a certain way and certain ideas come across. So if I was to totally abandon that, it'd be a very hard read. And, and, and I, I wouldn't be able to sell as many books. So I, I do use that old way of storytelling because we more readily um, are able to accept that form. And the ideas that they get across, all those boom moments that you got, they they just came to you naturally without you struggling to get to them. Yeah. Well, and you look at how um, recently we've seen the there was a huge backlash against Ryan Johnson for um, subverting the Campbellian hero's journey as much as he did in Last Jedi, which we're we're both fans of. 
uh, we really loved Last Jedi. And I think one of the reasons it works is because he did kind of mess with that structure. And one of my favorite examples, by the way, is uh, F. Paul Wilson's in the Repairman Jack series. He subverts the um, hero's journey really well, like in like, book 11 um, in really amazing ways. But it's very hard trick to do. And, um, you know, to, to balance, like, I'm going to mess with this this um, system of storytelling that's lasted for thousands of years for a reason. Um, right. It's but I think to do it and to do it well, you have to be able to have written that hero's journey and understand the, the, the parts of it um, to be able to mess with it successfully like Paul did. Yeah. All right, uh, Weston. Um, uh, um, I'm really glad you, uh, you know, because I've explained this to you, that I am not an e-reader. Um, I'm a physical book reader. And we just didn't have physical copies of Burning Sky in order to do this interview. So I actually had to read this on my phone. Oh, no. Yes, I had to read this on my phone. And I, I, I thought to myself at one point, I'm really fucking glad this book is good because I would have been throwing my phone off the bus. Um, oh, no. If, if it hadn't been good. But it was a great book. Um, and... At this point, anyone who's listening, hopefully they've read it and they're, I'm sure there'll be a few people that will want to just skip and get all the, um, get all the, the writer advice. But, um, yeah, so and we'll do a part at the beginning or at the end of the spoiler part. Um, make sure on the screen that we show how people can order the book for the YouTube version. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, this was really great and insightful. Um, both our conversations, I've, I've come out of it feeling like I've learned a lot. Um, you have very lucky students who, uh, who go to your classes to learn from you. So I appreciate it. 